Let me pray. Oh God, I pray as we come again to Romans, this great book we've been working through paragraph by paragraph, God, slowly over the past year and a half or so, uh, Lord, would pray that, God, you might help us to, God, submit to your word, God, not to our own ideas, not to our thoughts, God, for our thoughts are not your thoughts and our ways are not your ways. But your ways are far above and beyond ours. And Lord, I would pray especially today uh, for tender hearts, God, simply to, to hear your word. As I sense and as I've talked with people over the years, this is a passage that people do not like um, because they, they disagree with it. They don't, um, they don't see and understand. And rather than simply embracing, they reject. And so, Lord, I pray for hearts to accept just what your clear word says. It's, it's clear. Um, God, it is a, a glorious doctrine we will speak about today. Your justice. God, I, I thank you for your righteousness and justice. You are just in all your ways. Help us now come, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this past Monday was uh, Martin Luther King uh, Junior Day the famous civil rights advocate. In fact, from the 1950s to the 1960s, for more than a decade, maybe 15 years or so, Martin Luther King Jr. was the face of the civil rights movement. He sought for causes of social justice using nonviolence and civil disobedience. And ironically, then on April 4, 1968, he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but his memory lives on. Every third mem- Monday of January... Um, close to his January 15th birthday, we as a nation set aside one day, we call Martin Luther King Day, to remember the cause of civil rights movement and the social injustice that takes place in America. Now, we're a far cry than what we were 50 years ago in the days of Martin Luther King Jr., but um, we've made some long strides. Uh, An African-American can be president of the United States, unthinkable 50 years ago. But yet we have a long way to go. Uh, there's still plenty of injustice in our society. And that's really to be expected in a fallen world, right? With selfish sinners wanting to promote their own agenda and their own ways. And in fact, in a fallen world, there will always be social injustice. There will always have a need. We will always have a need for Martin Luther King Jr. Day to remind us that we're created equal and that all human beings need to be created with, treated with respect. Now, one thing that we can be thankful for, as, as much as there's social injustice in our world today, one thing we can be thankful for is that our God is perfectly just, and he is perfectly righteous. And whatever wrongs we may experience here upon the earth, we know that God will do right and that God will make things right. And, and the Bible is just saturated with statements uh, affirming this. Will spoke on this last week. Deuteronomy 32, verse 34, the swan, swan song of Moses. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's our God. He's filled with justice, filled with righteousness. I spoke, my text at the youth retreat was Daniel 4. This is the very last verse, Daniel 4, verse 37. All his works are right and all his ways are just. 
God is a, a righteous job. The Psalms are filled with affirmations of the righteousness and justice of God, like Psalm 111, verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty are his work, and his righteousness endures forever. His righteousness, that's his justice. The same word there is, is translated that way. Or Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Forever God is righteous and he is just and your law is true. Psalm 145 verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God is righteous and just in all his ways. Yeah, there are times when the biblical writers call it into question. Uh, most often it comes when in suffering occurs, like the psalmist in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He, he, was, he was in trouble and, and God was hiding himself. He says, your judgments are on high out of sight. So in, in other words, right, the justice of God, the, the judgments of God, they're like, they're like way out there. They're not here. And so he's questioning even the, the righteousness of God. Or Job, who is suffering, he says, behold, I cry out violence and I'm not answered. I cry for help, but there is no justice. Sometimes a question comes when God's people see the prosperity of the wicked and they question God's righteousness. Habakkuk 1 says the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. And even people in their sin question the justice of God because they're sinning and they're going unpunished. And they're thinking that it's not noticed. As Isaiah 40 says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. In other words, why are you saying that, oh, God's not just. He, he, I can do whatever I want, and there's no punishment coming. But here, this church family, all such questioning of God's justice is in vain. Because God is just, and he's righteous in all his ways. And, and though you may suffer, and there may be difficulty, and there may be injustice in this world... God is just. It's not that he is is unjust. Even when we we don't feel it, we don't see it, God's justice is there. It just might be delayed. In the end, God will set all things right. So the Lord says, at the set time, I will appoint. I will judge with equity. Well, this morning as we come to our text, we're going to see the justice of God questioned. But it has nothing to do with personal suffering going or sin going unpunished, but has everything to do with how God saves his people. Paul puts forth how God saves his people, and the accusation comes, is God unjust? It's the title of my message this morning. Our text is Romans 9, 14 through 18. Let's read that for us right now. I want to do that. If you didn't bring a Bible, page 945 of your pew Bible will get you there. We're just going to stay right here in Romans 9. And again, we've come along this text. We're just working through the Bible, working through Romans in recent days. Paul says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Here he is. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. I trust you can see the title of my message right there in verse 14. Where Paul says, what shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? There it is. Is God unjust? So I've tried to tried to summarize that, and Paul's answer comes right away. By no means. And we've seen that phrase, by no means, a couple times before, like in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. And we will see it again in Romans 11. And these aren't all of the by no means that we see in Romans. Romans 11, 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. It's really an important answer when you ask, is God unjust? And the answer comes from all of us, what does it say? By no means. It's translated in various different ways. The ESV translates it there, by no means, or, or God forbid, certainly not. May it never be, not at all, absolutely not. And I think that the emphasis of Paul here, he says it in the strongest negative possible. You could just line up all of these. Is God unjust? By no means. God forbid, certainly not. May it never be, not at all, absolutely not. Or the one I like the best is, no way, Jose. And really, this is the same point I was making in my introduction, talking about the, uh, the questioning of God's justice. When you question God's justice, it's all going to be in vain because God is absolutely just. He's just in all our ways, in all his ways. And so the answer to my message this morning is, is God unjust? By no means. And then Paul continues in verses 15 to 18 to answer the question. All right, but before we look at Paul's answer to the question, right, we need to see why it is he, answered, he asked the question in the first place. Right, because this is so key to understanding Romans 9 is he's going to bring up questions. He's going to bring up objections. And if they make sense from what follows, then you're understanding what Paul is saying. But if all of a sudden he says something, you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. It means you have not understood what was said before. Like, for instance, Romans 6. When, when it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's saying that, that salvation is so free and so great, and where, where sin abound, grace is more abounded, and understanding God's utter grace in our life. Should we just go on sinning? And he says, no, no, no. But you've got it right in some regards, but you've missed it in another. So is God unjust? Well, you've, you've got it sort of right, but, but you're missing it. Let's see how we get it sort of right. Verses 6 through 13, the issue at hand here and the issue of all of Romans 9 through 11 is the salvation of Israel. I mean, if, if Israel, if, if God's promises to Israel were such that they weren't fulfilled in them, then what about us? All right, if, if, if God's chosen people, the, the object of his love and grace, the, the recipients of verse 4, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of a law, the worship and the promises... If they got all those things and they failed to believe, then, then what about us? We cling to the promises of Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cling to the, combina- to the, um, the, the promise of Romans 8.38. I'm sure that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and these are great promises we hold out to, but Israel also had promises. And if it didn't work for them, will it work for us? Can we really be secure? And that's the question that Paul is answering in Romans 9 through 11. And Paul's answer about the trustworthiness of the promises of God is this. Not all Israel is Israel. 
Right? In other words, just because you're a physical descendant of Israel doesn't mean you're a spiritual descendant of Israel. And Romans 9, 6, 7, and 8, he says the same thing over and over again in different ways. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. See, God's promises hold true to his true children. And not just to one who professes or one who was of a bloodline of, of any way. And, and for proof of this, uh, again, this is a review from last week. He goes back to the first two generations from Abraham. Abraham had two children, had Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham and Hagar had Ishmael and Sarah, and Abraham had Isaac. And uh, both children came to Abraham, but Ishmael was sent away, but Isaac was the child of the promise. That means when you look at the children of Abraham, it's not all children of flesh or children of the promise. But through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. The same is true in the next generation, Jacob and Esau. Romans 9.10, and, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, same father, same mother, same moment of conception, same womb. Can't get any closer than that. Paul writes this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's what verse 11 says. As is told, the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So you had Esau was hated of God. Jacob was loved of God. And Esau was not the child of the promise. God chose Jacob and not Esau. And notice again, you've got to come back to verse 11. Romans 9, verse 11. Look at how long and hard Paul is laboring to say that salvation is not of us. He says, Though they were not yet born, they're in the womb, had done nothing good or bad. It's amazing. You think that Jacob, being the scoundrel he is, would have punched Esau in the, in the womb or something. I mean, he was. He went out grabbing his heel. He was known as a heel grabber. But they were in the womb before they'd done anything good or bad. So it's, it's not on them. He says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, in order that God, God chose Jacob over Esau so that his election might continue, because he wants salvation based upon his choice and not our choice, not because of works, but because of him who called. He was told the older will serve the younger. And God's choice of Jacob was not based upon works that they had done or works that they would do. God's choice of Jacob was to demonstrate, here it is, the freedom of God. God is free. And he chose Jacob that the purpose of election might stand. Now, you hear that, and you might say, well, that's not fair. Is that really just? That, that God would choose Jacob, not Esau, just because of his election. And if you're thinking that way, you've got Paul's point exactly. Because he raises the question in verse 14. Well, is there injustice on God's part? See, it, if, if you understood it this way, oh, he chose Jacob because of foreseen works or because of who Jacob would be, then you're like, that's totally just. But what he's saying is that he chose before they'd done good or bad. Does that, does that really sound just? And that's where the question comes. And that means you're understanding verses 6 through 13 exactly rightly. And so now we look at the answer. Really, two answers he gives. Here's my first point. The answer is that God will be merciful. Verse 15. 
For he says to Moses, this is right, right. Is there injustice with God? Is God unfair? Absolutely not. By no means. And here's why God is just. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this is the first of two Old Testament quotes in our text. And, and both of these come from the book of Exodus. Last week, two quotes coming from the book of Genesis. Two, two examples of the, the models from, from Genesis. And now we're pulling from Exodus. And so Paul, what he's doing is he's showing that his doctrine is nothing new. It's not like Jesus came along and brought this new thing. This has always been so. From the patriarchs, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now he's saying from the, not only the founding of our, of our nation with our people, but the founding of the nation with the giving of the law in, in Exodus. And we see the beginning of the, the people of Israel. And, and the quote is this. He says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. That comes from Exodus 33, verse 19. And the context here is the sin of Israel. In Exodus 32, Moses was was up on the mountain receiving the law of God. And while he was up there communing with the law of God, the people were down below um, fretting over Moses' delay. And they said, he's gone. We don't know who this Moses is. Let's make ourselves a god. And so they combined all of their gold jewelry together. They molted together and formed this golden calf, and they began to worship it. God hears what's happening and says he's going to destroy. He's ready to destroy the stiff-necked people, but Moses intercedes for them. He claims the promises, God, that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You need to be faithful to these people because you promised. And so God shows his mercy. And then in Exodus 33... Moses then again went up on the mountain to get more the law of God, to see God's grace, to see the law of God written a second time. And, uh, and Moses was pleading with the Lord for help in leading this disobedient, stubborn people. And at one point, Exodus thirty three eighteen, the verse before this, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And the Lord replies, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And the reality is, this is the reality of how the Lord's saving work works, is that God determines the objects of his mercy. God is the one who determines the object of his mercy. And with Israel, he could have destroyed them. He would have been perfectly just to do so. And as they had rejected him and followed after other gods in violation of the first two commandments that they had just been given... But with Israel, God chose to be merciful. And that's the point of our, of our verse here. In verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's the one who determines his mercy. God's the one who determines his compassion. So that's really the first part of God's answer. Is God unjust? Well... I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's the first answer that Paul gives. So you've got to think about this with me a little bit. His answer is a repetition of what he just said. Okay? So, so think about what he just said in verses 9 through 13 about Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. And basically what he said is, I'm going to show mercy to Isaac and I'm going to show mercy to Jacob. I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. I'll be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. 
And see, the question of the justice of God arose precisely because God's election, his choice of one rather than the other. And when Paul answered the question, he said that God has a right to show mercy to whomever he wills. And God chooses the recipients of his mercy. But notice, he didn't quite answer the question. But in not quite answering the question, he's demonstrating what he didn't mean. Now would be the perfect time for him to say, well, is there injustice with God? Well, you need to realize who Esau would become. And I foresaw the works that he would do and that he is, Jacob is more deserving. Therefore, I'm giving my salvation to Jacob and not Esau because he's more deserving. He, he could have answered it that way on, on what they had done or what they were do or who they were or their goodness or something on them. But he doesn't. He answers it the same way as he said before. God will be merciful upon who will be merciful you know, compassion upon whom he has compassion. And the explanation goes right back to the freedom of God. You've got to see what's, what's happening here is, is uh, you know, pe- people are bound up. Oh, we're free. Well, you know what? God is the ultimate free one in the universe. He can do as he wills. And he chooses to extend his mercy and grace, dispense it to whomever he wants. Now, in reality, for God to be perfectly just, we all would be condemned. None of us be chosen. None of us would receive mercy and grace. It wasn't it the message of Romans 1 through 3 that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have turned aside. None of us have turned the right way. We, none of us have sought for God. And then the wrath of God, Romans 1, 18, is, is revealed upon us. And the question is often raised is, is this right, right here. Why is God merciful to some and not the others? Right? The question really should be is in light of our sin, why is it that God is merciful to anybody? So we kind of we switch that question sometimes. I mean, pe- people think, well, it's not fair that God doesn't save anybody, everybody. <laughs> it's not fair that God saves anybody. That's what Paul is arguing here. I mean, our sin deserves judgment. And um, for any to avoid judgment, it, it doesn't quite seem just, does it? So you say, is, is God just? We say, yes, he is. Then why aren't all condemned to hell? Well, because he shows his mercy. And, and he already showed in, in Romans 3 about how he does that. But, but you think about here, if, if we all deserve judgment and God gives mercy to some, that, is that really being just? Like a judge. If uh, an earthly judge um, would do that, he'd be run out of town on a rail, right? There's this, this uh, guilty murderer who right, the, 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 is guilty beyond question. And the judge says, well, I'll, I'll show mercy. Let him free. Guilty murder back on the streets. He would not be reelected again because he's an unjust judge. But in Romans 3, Paul explained how God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How God can be just and merciful at the same time because he said that Jesus came as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, that is appeasing the wrath of God. The, the death of Jesus was a sufficient punishment for sinners so that what, what God can do is he can take the punishment we deserve, put it on Jesus, so he can show mercy to us. As it says in Romans 6, 3.26, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just in that he condemns and punishes sin, but he's the justifier of us because he shows mercy to us because he's taken our sin and thrown it on Jesus. That's the gospel right there. That God can be just and merciful at the same time because of the cross of Christ. But, but then people come and, and, and question the justice of God. Why doesn't God save all? 
Why does God only save some? It's a legitimate question. On, on one level, the Bible, the answer to the Bible comes, right? Because all have turned aside. They, they've hated God. They've gone their own way. And because of their unbelief, they're condemned. And, and Paul knew that reality. I mean, Romans 9, verse 3, verse 2, right? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because my kinsmen, verse 3, were, were accursed and, and cut off for the sake of Christ. And I would long that I would swap places with them, that I would be accursed, that I would be uh, apart from Christ. I long to be where they are if I could just swap places with them. They're, they're unbelieving. And, and so really, on one level, the reason why God doesn't save all is, is because people's unbelief and because of their sin and because of their choice to follow after their own way. But that's one level. But on, I think, a greater level of what's going on is that... Um, God chooses to extend his mercy to whom we will. Why doesn't God forgive all? Because mercy is a matter of God's freedom to dispense as he wills. And why he doesn't save all, that's in the mystery of God. I'm a guess. Romans 2.7 says that we are saved by grace so that forever to come we're trophies of the grace of God. But they're also trophies of the justice of God as well. And in fact, we're going we're gonna to see that verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, right? There it is. God wants to know, show he's great and powerful. But what if he's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us. So we've got these vessels of wrath, these vessels of mercy. And what God does, he endures the vessels of wrath for a while so that he might make his glory known vessels of mercy. There's going to be two vessels in heaven. Those that display the justice of God. Well, they're not in heaven, whatever, they're in hell, whatever, their existence, suffering for their sins. And those who are vessels of mercy, showing forth God's mercy forevermore, so that all the panoply of God's character is displayed in us. It's God's freedom to dispense as he, as he will. And, and, and how he does or why he does, we, we don't exactly know. But he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God will be merciful. In fact, this whole... This whole thing of God giving us mercy and grace and compassion undeservedly is what makes mercy, mercy. This is the very thing that makes grace, grace. This is the very thing that makes compassion, compassion. Because mercy and grace and compassion are only mercy and grace and compassion if they come totally undeserved. If there's a bit of merit there, it's no longer mercy. It becomes it's, it's what is due. Because nobody deserves mercy and nobody deserves grace. Nobody deserves compassion. If they did, they wouldn't be mercy, grace, and compassion. Even just a little bit destroys it all. And the right conclusion comes in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. And that's exactly the point of Romans 6 through 13. God chose to be merciful to the Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose to be merciful to Jacob and not Esau. And it wasn't dependent upon their will. Before they'd done anything good or bad, it wasn't dependent upon what they did. It doesn't depend upon who they'd be. It wasn't dependent on who they were. It depended upon God who willed. See, salvation is ultimately not dependent upon us. It's dependent entirely upon the Lord. Now, this isn't the only place this is taught. Okay, 
Once you have your eyes open to this, you'll see this all over the Bible. Just let's let's consider to say the Gospel of John. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who call on his name. Great. As many as received Christ became children of God. Absolutely wonderful. But then John digs, John 1.13 digs right below the surface. He says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but were born of the will of God. It was God who born them and changed them and received them. Yes, people received Jesus, but it wasn't their bloodline. It wasn't the will of the flesh. It wasn't the effort of man. It was God's will. This is what Jesus referred to in John chapter 3 when he talked with Nicodemus about the wind. The wind blows where it wills. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind that we don't know where it goes, but the Spirit of God blows and it will have His way among the sons of men. Or listen to the words of Jesus in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And when Jesus spoke these words, his disciples understood. They said, Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus didn't back down and said, oh, no, 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 listen. I didn't really mean it. I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean it that when I said, right, no one can come. I mean, you can really do it on your will. He, he doubled down. He says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And the result is, John 6, 66, that many of disciples turn back, no longer walk with him. And this is the sad reality of this doctrine, is that people don't like it, so they reject it and they leave it. Many hear it, hate it, want nothing to do with it, walk away from Jesus and the salvation that he he gives. You know, it's, it's something that the reality of how God's salvation works, right, depending not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, verse 16, is that there's great glory in that. And it's really the foundation of chapter 8 in the security is because if God's the one who chooses us, stirs in our heart, draws us to him so that our eyes are open, so that we're born again to see the glories of Christ, if God's the one that does that, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And therefore, that's why we can say there's no condemnation because God's the one that initiated. He brought me. That's why we can say there's no separation from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord because God is the one who united us. But if it depends upon us to get there, it depends upon our grip, we can let go. But if it depends upon God's grip, he won't ever let go. There's a whole question, right? Can man lose his salvation? It's the wrong question. Can God lose a Christian? That's the right question. Of course not. Right? You, you come into my hand, and those I have, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. And there's a glory in that, if you just embrace it. And lots of people resist it, they don't like it. I would say it's, a, it's an issue of humility. Are you just going to bend God's word? Or are you going to be proud, I think, and just say, no, there was something I did. I chose, I chose. Well, yes, you chose, but why did you choose? Because God chose you and stirred in your heart and opened your eyes so that you saw him and so you chose him. That's how it works. It's Our salvation is monergistic, mono-only, working, ergistic. God is the one who works. It's not synergistic. It's not like God does his part, I do my part, we meet halfway in the middle, we do our thing. No, God does his part, works in us, changes us, forms us, and then draws us to Jesus. You know, this is why you pray for people to be saved. You ever thought about that? Why do you pray for people to be saved? Because you're praying to the one who can save them. 
God, open their eyes that they might see Jesus. Show them their sin. Right? Cause them to believe. God, create them a new heart. Right? We're praying that because God is the one who works. I find it highly ironic that those who resist this doctrine um, are, are those who would be perhaps fervent in evangelism. Right? And, and, and they would pray for salvation of souls. Missing the whole irony, right? If it's people's freedom, why are you praising for God to intervene on the lives of people? It just doesn't make sense. But it all makes sense when you believe that God is the one working. We pray to him and we evangelize. Uh, Romans, right? We've been going through Romans 9 and 10 is an evangelistic chapter. It's all about evangelism, longing to see people come to Jesus and longing to see God work. Whether it's God, merciful, my second point, God will exert his will. We've seen a bit of that in verse 16 about but human. It's not human exertion. It's God's exertion. So this kind of spills over. But verse 17 and 18 are really the explanation. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. <clears throat> Again, a quote from Exodus. This comes from Exodus 9, verse 16. It comes after the sixth plague. The plague of boils that was, was so bad that it came upon all men and beasts in Egypt. The Egyptians were so um, infected with their boils that they couldn't even come and stand before Pharaoh. Hitting only the Egyptians. And all these plagues, right? They're, they're, they're making a differentiation between people oftentimes. Between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. Very clear to see. And uh, God explained what was happening. God was using Pharaoh to glorify himself. Like, think about this. If Pharaoh just let the Hebrew people go then there would have been no plagues and Israel for years would not have been able to repeat the story of God's greatness throughout all the generations. But God wanted this story to be told. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Some of my favorite verses in all of Exodus account. Here it is. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, you go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might show these signs of mine among them. I'm working to harden his heart so that you come and you ask, his heart will be hard so that you can perform these signs so that, Exodus 10 verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. In other words, this was an object lesson for Israel to show them the glories of Jesus, Jesus of God. This was an evangelistic tool, a lesson to show how powerful God is, right? That they might tell their children and their grandchildren how great God is, that they would come to know the Lord. Can you picture it? You have a Jewish man and, and, a, and a grandson on his lap. Grandson on his lap. Is there playing with his grandson? Let, let, let me tell you a little bit about God. We were slaves in Egypt. And, 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 and Moses went and asked for release. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could turn the, the water of the Nile into blood. So he could fill the land with frogs and fill it with gnats and fill it with swarms of insects. And even after that, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then what God did was he, he struck down the livestock of the Egyptians. Boils on every, everything. Hail destroyed the Egyptian agriculture. Finally, darkness covered the land Except in Goshen, there was light there. And then the final plague, 
was God going through and, and discerning among everybody the firstborn of man, beast, so from the top of Pharaoh down to the slave girl to the cows in the stall, the firstborn dead in one night. But we were rescued because we put the blood of the lamb over the lintels of our, our doorhouses. That's how great God is, that after these powerful things, then Pharaoh's heart was softened and he let us go. God redeemed us with a, a mighty hand. And how many countless Jews came to faith on their grandfather's knee because of hearing the story of Pharaoh's hard heart. Resist the pleas of Moses. But if you don't have Pharaoh's hard heart, you don't have resisting of the plea, you don't have the plagues, and you don't have the story for evangelism. That's how God's working, his whole, whole plan. And God will exert his will. Now, at this point, of course, there are all, always objections. People say, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart first, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, two big problems with that. First of all, this is not true. If you read Exodus, that's not, that's not how it reads. Just search Exodus, look for hard, harden it, whatever. And you see the first instance of that comes in chapter 4. That's Moses, that's God coming to Moses to explain the plan before the plan happened. Exodus 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. God's saying, I'm going to harden his heart. And shortly before Moses and Aaron entered Pharaoh's presence for the first time, we see this, Exodus 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Even at one point, the swarms of insects, the magician says, this is the hand of God. The magicians were even telling that, but it took, whatever, six more plagues for Pharaoh's heart to, to soften. Pharaoh's heart was hardened because it was the divine plan. It was God who initiated that. And sure, yes, there are three times when it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but there are about 20 times where it says that God hardened his heart or his heart was hardened by a divine passive, that God was doing it. That's the first problem you have if you say, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then um, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then God hardened his heart. Do you follow after that? And that's all, by the way, just to justify this doctrine. And if you, your second big problem, first doesn't match the story, but your second big problem is it misses Paul's argument. That's not what Paul is saying. You miss the whole point. Like, look at verse 18. Paul says this, so then... God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Whoever God wants, that's what he does. He is God. That's what it means to be God, is to do whatever you want. God is sovereign in salvation. He'll show mercy or harden whatever he will. He will exert his will. Now, why God does this, I'm not exactly sure. But that's the way God does it, right? I think for his glory or... How he does it, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But, but the question here arises, right? It may be in your heart. you got this question. Okay, so how can that be fair? If God chooses, how does God then condemn? Like, how does he find fault with someone? Like, if, if I chose someone and didn't, well, how can I find fault with them? They wouldn't come unless I, I did anything anyway. 
And if that's your question, you've understood exactly what Paul is saying, because that's what he raises. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, if it depends upon God showing mercy and God hardening whoever he desires, and yet he still condemns those whom he hardened, how can that possibly ever be fair? That's exactly the question that Paul raises. And you will see in verses 20 and following, he doesn't say, well, you see, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Or because of this, no, he goes back to say that God is God and God is, is free. And what strikes us to the core, all of us, is this. Is it fair for God to harden a heart and find fault in that hard heart? If you have that question, come back next week because we're going we're gonna to tackle that question. Is it fair for God to harden a heart, still find fault in that hardened heart? But this week for you, I, I have a question. Do you believe verse 18? Do you believe it? That God will exert his will in our hearts. You you have two choices in this doctrine. You can either reject it, deny it, or embrace it. Verse 18 couldn't be clear. He has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whoever he wills. If you deny it, I ask you to take scissors and cut verse 18 out of your Bible. Really. Because you don't believe it. Now, you, you can say something like, you know what, that's what it says. I don't quite understand it. I don't understand how God can harden and yet condemn. But that's what it says. And so by faith, I'm just trusting and understanding and wrestling through. That's totally wonderful. But if you say, no, that's not what it is, cut it out. Just cut it out. The whole issue here is the word of God, whether it's failed or not. Chapter 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. If you try to logically deduce these things, for you, the word of God has failed. Now, I'm not denying these verses are difficult. To understand, but it couldn't be more clear that the difficulty is really embracing the sovereignty of God. It's interesting as I, I spoke this week at the youth camp on Daniel chapter 4 in my study of it and thought about it. It was, it was always this, right? God is, the story is, right? God is sovereign over all things. You got Nebuchadnezzar exalted in his pride, but God can humble him because God, his kingdom is forever, his dominion is from everlasting to everlasting, and he can humble whoever he wills. And, uh, the, th- the phrase I kept coming back to in the commentators and the things I read was this. Either you can believe in God's sovereignty and humbly submit, or you can actively resist God's sovereignty. And so likewise with this doctrine, you, you can either just believe it, embrace it, and submit to it, or you can fight it and resist it. And I do the former. Embrace it because... It leads to some things, some incredible depths of the worship of God. When you realize that your salvation is all of grace, 100% of grace, then it's like, you understand what it means when you say, all right, that, 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 uh, what is it? Simply nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You understand that there's nothing that you, why are you sitting here in church this morning? Not because you're good enough. Because God had mercy upon you. And it leads to an incredible depth of, of worship. My sins, they are many, but God's mercy is more. And in fact, more than just forgiving, it's going back. Because Ephesians speaks about from the foundation of the world, choosing us to be in Christ, that we might have all the blessings. And that many places in Christ. 
It leads to deep worship. It leads to great thankfulness to to God for working in your life. It leads to, here's the context of Romans, it leads to security. You know that you're not condemned. You know that nothing's going to separate you from the love of Christ because God is the one who brought you. And it will lead you to great joy because you know that you're a favored one of God. It doesn't lead you to pride. It's not like, oh, I'm favored because of this. No, it leads you to like Mary when Gabriel appeared to her. Hail, O favored one. But she was a humble servant of the Lord. And, And all these types of things. This is something that when you embrace it, when you look at it, when you accept it, It will have a great, deep joy, abiding confidence. You'll walk in a a Christian life in a very confident, secure way. And see, it's those who are secure in the love that God has for them, who are willing to risk, who are willing to go forth, who are willing to go bold, because they know that nothing is going to separate them from Christ. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious passage. I pray, oh God, that we would... Submit to it. I pray that we would submit to your answer next week. How do you find fault then if you're the one who hardens and condemns? Father, I pray that we would be humble people to submit our hearts and our lives to you completely. And for those struggling with these things, I know that this is not a mere intellectual issue. I know that it's not a matter of smartness. God, it's, it's a matter of sanctification, and that comes slow sometimes. I remember when I was first confronted with this issue, I resisted. I said, no, we're told we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And then this beloved pastor read the next verse. For it is God who's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that changed some things. So, Father, I pray you'd help us to see that the the doctrines of grace here are, are glorious because grace then becomes grace. Not diluted in any way. 100% receive your mercy. Oh, God, in that we do, we do rejoice. God, help us to be lovers of your word, students of your word. Simply embrace what you have for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.